And just one more time, let me welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. If you're here in person with us, if you're visiting, if you're visiting with us over live stream, glad that you're here, and it's good to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. We're beginning a new series this morning in the book of Isaiah um, as, we, as we look at how God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells us how he wants to prepare the way for God to his people. We're going to spend these four weeks in the prophet Isaiah leading up to Christmas, and some of these passages might be familiar Christmas-themed passages for you. Some of them may not be, but we're going to see that the prophet Isaiah, this morning and for the next three weeks, he wants to prepare the people of God for the arrival of God. He wants God's people to be ready for God's arrival. He wants God's people then and now to be ready for his coming. Now, his original audience, the people that Isaiah was sent to, they were living on the edge of a knife between hope and despair, in the darkness, in the exile of a faraway land, far away from home, feeling the distance and the darkness and the absence of God. The people that God sends Isaiah to the first time here, they were discouraged, they were brokenhearted. They were wondering if they had a future in the land that they had left. They were wondering if they had a future with the God that they had left. They were in exile for their decades and decades of willful disobedience and rebellion and idolatry. And God had been warning them and warning them and warning them. And finally, his patience ran out. And so here they are, far from home in exile, in the darkness of what looks like a hopeless situation, and wondering if God is done with them. Wondering if their darkness and their distance, their failure, their shame, wondering if that's the end of the story. Feeling the absence of God. Feeling the distance from home. And they could not see a way forward. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe as you're here this morning, that resonates. Maybe you know what it's like, either in times past or right now, to not see a way forward out of the darkness. To not be able to imagine things being different than they are right now. The way that your life is playing out right now, the circumstances outside of you, Or maybe the secrets inside of you? Do you know what it's like to be in the darkness that's a result of looking at your past and looking at your present and not being able to see a future? Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like for the darkness to be so thick that you can't see a way out? And you're wondering if this is how the story is always going to be and if this is how the story is going to end. Do you know what it's like to be in the darkness, away from home, feeling the absence of God? Brothers and sisters and friends, it's right there in that darkness that God meets his people. One writer says that Advent begins in the darkness. When the darkness is so thick that we can't see a way forward, and it's not like we're just not seeing it, there's not a way out of it. 
There is no way out because the darkness is so thick. That's where God comes. That's where God arrives. The word Advent comes from that word meaning to arrive. It's the coming of God. It's the arrival of God in the darkness to make a way out that literally wasn't there before. It's, an, it's a way out that God creates that literally did not exist before. Advent is the good news about the arrival of God in the darkness. And that's what our passage is about this morning in Isaiah 57. It's about the arrival of God in his people's darkness to make a way out that didn't exist before. You're actually going to see that word way several times in our, in our passage today. It's the, word, it's the Hebrew word for a path or a road, a way, a trail. It's something that you travel on. And our whole passage is about this way, this road that God is preparing and that he wants us to travel. And y'all, the good news of the gospel and the good news of Advent is that God arrives, he comes into the darkness to make a way forward, to make a way out towards hope, towards life, and towards light that was not there before. Now, what does that mean for you and me this morning? Well, let's read and find out. Isaiah 57, this is God's word to you and me this morning. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the Word of God that stands forever and that has come into our darkness to be made flesh, to dwell among us. And so come, O Word of God, and speak your words to our hearts this morning. Come and show us again who you are, what you've done, what you're doing and what you will complete. Cast the eyes of our hearts upon you, O God, and revive our hope. For we look to you, our Lord, and our rock and our redeemer. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So our passage this morning in Isaiah 57 is about the arrival of God in the darkness to prepare a way, a road, 
a trail, something for his people to travel on, a way that did not exist before. That's what our whole passage is about. And you can see that here because it's mentioned twice in verse 14, this, this way that God is coming to prepare. And then verses 15 to 19, all that they're doing is, is fleshing out and expanding on what this way is and what it means, what it looks like. You'll notice that both, verse, both verses 15 and 16 both begin with the word for. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. And then verse 16, for I will not contend forever. So you'll notice that what those, are, what those words mean is that everything that's coming after that is pointing back to something that was said before, to this way that God is preparing, to this road that God is building for his people. So the whole passage that we're going to look at today and that we just read is about this divine road construction project that God is up to. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. So this passage is about the arrival of God in the darkness to build a way. I'm going to ask four questions about this way this morning that our passage is going to answer. First of all, why is this way necessary? Secondly, who is the way for? Third, how is the way prepared? And then fourth, where does the way go? So first of all, why is this way necessary in the first place? This, this divine road construction project that God is up to, that he's building, this way that he's preparing, why does he have to do it in the first place? Well, to cut right to it, it's necessary for the same reason that it was necessary for you this last week to get in your car and travel to see your family members for Thanksgiving, or the reason it was necessary for them to get in the car and come to you. Because there's a distance, a gap, a space that has to be crossed if you're going to be with one another. This last week, we got in the car, we loaded up and drove down the road to Hattiesburg, Mississippi to be with, with my dad and my, my siblings and my family. We drove the very long and boring stretch of road, oh, especially in between Tuscaloosa, Alabama and Meridian, Mississippi. Who wants to do that? We traveled that boring stretch of road because they're there and we're here, because there's a distance, because we're not with each other, because there's a gap that has to be crossed. Roads exist because distance exists. And that's why this road, this way that God is preparing is necessary, because there's a gap, there's a space, there's a distance between where God is and where we are. But it's not a geographical distance. It's not the distance between family members at Thanksgiving. It's not the distance even between Babylon and Israel. This distance that the people of Israel, the, the original hearers of this prophecy, would have thought was an insurmountable distance. No, the, the gap in God's mind is way greater than that. It's the gap that makes this way, this road, necessary. It's the distance between heaven and earth. It's the distance between where God is and where you are. It's the distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's the distance between the wilderness outside the Garden of Eden and the tree of life inside it. 
and that distance, it wasn't always the case. You know, God did not go to all the trouble to make the world and make the garden in it and then make us in his image and put us there in his image to walk with him in the cool of the day. He didn't go to all that trouble just for us to be distant, for this gap to exist. It wasn't always this way, but the distance has been there ever since Genesis 3. It's all we've ever known. It's the story that you and I were born into because we're born outside of that garden, that garden that we were made for. And that's the distance that's in view here. It's the distance between the garden where God dwells and the wilderness outside where we're in exile, where we are and where we actually prefer to be the way that we come into this world. You see, that's the bad news, is that we're born into an exile that we actually keep choosing for ourselves. The distance from God that we actually seem to choose so often. Our sinful hearts prefer the distance. So this road, this way that God is preparing here in Isaiah 57, it's necessary because of the impossible distance between the wilderness and the garden, between exile and and home. And you see this divine road construction project here, it's necessary because, because this divine road construction project, it's not the kind of road construction project that we see around Franklin all the time. It's not a repaving project. It's not a, wane, a, a lane widening project. It's not a resurfacing project. See, the, the imagery here is not the imagery of taking an uncomfortable road that already exists and making it more comfortable. No, the imagery here is more like this. I bet you remember the story that came out of Miami this last year, this tragic story from June of this last year when a high-rise condo collapsed suddenly, trapping hundreds of residents inside an enormous pile of concrete and rebar and steel. For days and days, rescuers dug and dug to try to rescue the people inside because there was no way out. You don't dig your way out of that. The obstruction, the obstacles are too much. The only way is a way in, not a way out. And that's the imagery that God is giving us here. This is the kind of road construction that he's up to. Building a way, a road into the wreckage, into the mess, into the darkness, into the place where we can't dig our way out of. He says, build up. Build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. You see, this divine road construction project, it's really a rescue operation. It's God digging his way to us to find us in the wreckage that we've made for ourselves, out in the wilderness, out in the exile, out in the darkness. God is preparing a way home, and he's the architect, and he's the builder of the road. But the distance, that's why the road is necessary. Secondly, who's the way for? If God is building this road, this way home, to find us in our darkness, to bring us back, who, who's invited back? Who's the way for? Well, verse 15 tells us 
Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with... Now stop right there. What are you expecting to come next? God has just reminded us of who he is and what he's like and where he dwells. He's driving the point home that he's holy, that he is high and majestic and lifted up, that he dwells in unapproachable light, that his glory is beyond description, that your best imaginations of God's glory and splendor is just a a raindrop compared to the Pacific Ocean. He's telling us what he's like and that his surroundings match his character and his nature. (laughs) And now he's going to tell us who he dwells with. He's he's just told us what he dwells in, and now he's going to tell us with whom he dwells. And here's the thing. We're expecting for these two things to match up, to have some kind of semblance, you know, to be on the same page, to be similar, and they're not. Like, at all. To put it plainly, you would just expect a God like this, high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. You would expect him to choose better roommates for himself. But look at what's next. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is, who is of a contrite and lowly heart. Y'all, that is not the crowd that we're expecting to read there. (laughs) These are not the ones that you're expecting to make the invite list of a God like this. They shouldn't be there. You would expect a God like this to make a home for the people that you would expect to be there. The good, the capable, the deserving, the strong, the ones that measure up, or at least the ones that are trying hard, the ones that it just... It makes sense to see them in the presence of God, right? I mean, that's how Santa Claus operates, at least, right? Like, when Santa comes to town, the advent of Santa on Christmas Day, who does he come for? Well, you know, he makes a list. He checks it twice. Why? Because he's coming to find out who's naughty and nice. He's coming to reward the nice, the good, and to leave behind the naughty. So you want to be good, and you don't want to be naughty. Santa's arrival, Santa's advent on Christmas Day, on Christmas Eve, it's for the people that you would expect. But who are these people that God's coming for? Who are these people that God is leaving heaven to to dig his way through the wreckage to find? He says he's coming for the people who are brokenhearted and repentant of all the reasons that they know that they're not on the nice list. All the people that know that they've disqualified themselves. Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Y'all, that means to be deeply aware of all the reasons why you don't measure up. To be deeply aware of all the reasons that you're not on the nice list. That you're not the the good one. You're not the one that everybody would expect. You're not the capable. And you haven't tried hard enough. And even your best efforts haven't gotten you there. To be contrite and lowly means to stare that reality in the face 
to be brokenhearted about it and to know that the only way to God is if he finds a way to you. That's who God's coming for. That's who God's making a way for. It's the people who know that they can't make a way for themselves. And they know that the only way to God, the only way forward, is if God makes a way to them. God dwells in the high place and with the low person. Y'all, you just can't make a God like that up. You just can't make this up. And you can't get bored with a God like this. (laughs) And you can't help but worship a God like this. A God who dwells in the high and holy places and without blinking says, I want the lowly with me. The one who knows that they don't belong here. The one who knows that, that, that they can't work their way out of the darkness or earn their way out of the darkness but the one that's crying out in the darkness. The one who's convinced that he can't make a way to God, and so he cries out to God in the darkness, to the God who dwells on high and makes his home with the lowly, who chooses roommates like you and me. That's who God's preparing a way for. So we've seen why this way is necessary, and we've seen who this way is for. Thirdly, how is this way prepared? How is God actually going to make a way forward out of the darkness for his people? How is God going to deal with the distance? What's God going to do to prepare a way for his people through the wreckage so they can come home? Well, that's what he turns to in verses 16 through 18. And in these verses, God tells us how he's actually going to prepare the way home how he's going to lay the pavement so that his people can come back. He says in verse 16, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Y'all, if there's going to be a way home, out of the wilderness and back to the garden, something's got to be done about that flaming sword that God put there at the end of Genesis 3. This flaming sword that God put there to prevent Adam and Eve and to prevent us to think that we can just waltz right back in to his presence. You see, as long as that sword is there, there is no way home. And that sword, what is it? That flaming sword is the sword of God's wrath, the sword of God's anger, the sword of God's justice. And it's a big problem. But listen, it's not a problem because it's for for why you're thinking. God's, God's anger, God's righteous justice against what's wrong with us and with this world, it's actually a it's a product of his holiness. It's a function of his character. He is righteously angry, angry because he is righteous and holy. And you can take great comfort in a God who's angry at the things that are breaking this world apart. God's anger is not the problem. The reasons for his anger are the problem. And so it's a problem when you're the object of his wrath. And he's saying here that it's us. 
He says in verse 17, he he gives us a snapshot of of our sinful condition. This is what we look like from God's vantage point. Verse 17, he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. That's us. Even after God comes after us to to lovingly discipline us and bring us back to him to try to put us back on the road, what do we do? The way that we come into this world, this is the way that our hearts are wired. We want our own way. We don't want the road back to God. We want our own way. It says, he went on backsliding in the way, in the road of his own heart. The problem isn't God's anger. The problem is that we deserve it. The problem is that we've come into this world preferring the darkness and loving being lost in the wilderness. And the only road that we want is our own way. On the road again. Like a band of gypsies, we go down the highway. And what's the way that we want? We want the way, we want the road to turn our way. And our way is away. How can a way home, a way from the wilderness to the garden, possibly be prepared while that sword is still there? Well, notice again, verse 16, God says, I will not always be angry. Now, y'all, that is not the language. See, God is not like me. He doesn't get angry like me. When I sinfully get angry at my kids, it's like I've just got to get over it. They make me angry, and I've got to just go take a deep breath, walk away, calm down. I've just got to get over it. God is not capricious, short-tempered. He's not anything like me. So it's not like his anger here is just something he's got to calm down, take a deep breath, and get over. He's not saying, y'all, I'll calm down eventually. And notice he's not saying that you're going to stop making me angry. He says, I will not always be angry. He says, I I will stop contending against you. Now that word to contend, it's a a courtroom word. Um, It's the word for to, to press a lawsuit against somebody, to press a case in court, to file a lawsuit. To press a a case against someone is to contend against them. It's a a legal term. And notice that God doesn't say, you're going to make me stop contending. He doesn't say, you're going to change. You're going to get better. You're going to finally get with it. And then I'll stop contending. He doesn't say that. He says, in view of all the evidence... In view of all the guilty evidence, all the reasons to contend, all of the just and righteous and holy reasons to be angry and to to contend against you in the heavenly courtroom, I'm going to choose to say no condemnation. Y'all, verse 18 is this jaw-dropping summary of this whole section. It's incredible. Where God says, I have seen his ways but I will heal him. I don't know if there's a history of punctuation marks, if anybody has ever written that book before. It would be a very boring book. But if there is a history of punctuation marks, this, the comma in this sentence would be right up there at the top of the most amazing punctuation marks in the history of written language. Because it shouldn't be a comma. 
It should be a period. A big, loud, dark period. There's no reason that this sentence should keep going. Notice he says, I have seen my people's ways. It's all out there in front of me. I know what they're like. I can see right through them. I know what they're like. It's all there in broad daylight. They're not changing. They keep going their own way. They love this darkness that they're actually in. They don't actually want to come home left up to themselves. And so, in view of all that evidence, and then the sentence keeps going, I will heal them. You just don't see that coming. We just shouldn't expect that. That should never get boring to us. Verse 18 should not read this way. If anything, I read this the first time, and I think this is a typo. This has got to be a typo. That would make so much more sense, because the way that this should read is, I have seen his ways. God's saying, I've seen your ways. I've seen your whole life play out in front of me. I know all of the dirty, nasty interior of your heart. I've seen it all. And so in view of all that, I will leave you. I will punish you. I will forsake you. There's just no reason, no conceivable reason outside of the sheer, limitless, abundant, amazing grace of God that it reads, I have seen your ways and I will heal you. How is God going to prepare the way? By grace. By grace. By sheer, limitless, amazing grace. I've heard it put this way before, that grace is not simply the favor of God in the, in the absence of merit, but it's the, it's the favor of God in the presence of demerit. And there's a big difference. Favor in the absence of merit, favor in the lack of something to deserve it, would be kind of like this. If you showed up at work, if you, if you worked at a store downtown and, you, sh- and um, you were supposed to, s- to show up for your shift last night to work eight hours, you didn't show up. You just slept through it. And you show up to work the next day and your boss comes to you and says, you didn't show up for work. You didn't do anything. You didn't contribute a single thing yesterday. But here's your check. I'm going to pay you for the shift yesterday. That would be grace. That would be God's favor in the absence of merit. There's nothing to deserve it. But y'all, grace goes so much deeper than that. Because grace in the presence of demerit would be like you actually showing up for work last night, but you showed up drunk and you showed up high. And you took a baseball bat and you destroyed all the merchandise in the building. And then you took that baseball bat and you severely injured several customers in the store. And they're going to file multi-million dollar lawsuits against the owner of the store. And then you took the cash register and you stole it. And then you took some gasoline and you poured it all over the floor of the building. You lit it on fire and you burned the place to the ground. And the next day the boss comes to you and he says... I saw it all. I see your ways. And I'm going to pay for that money in the cash register. 
and I'm going to pay the money for those lawsuits, and I'm going to go to jail for you. And here's the check for your shift last night. That is grace. That is God's favor in the presence of demerit. God's abundant favor in view of all of the reasons that he shouldn't show you favor. That's grace. Now, you might be thinking that's crazy, but y'all, that's the way that God treats us. That's grace. And that's the way that God prepares the way home. He says, I've seen your ways. And so in light of it all, I will heal you. I will wound somebody else. Somebody else will pay. I will pay. By his wounds, we are healed. That's how the way home is prepared. So we've seen why the way is necessary. We've seen who the way is for. And we've seen how the way is prepared. Fourthly and lastly, where does the way go? Where does this road go? Well, verse 19 tells us what the end result is of God's divine road construction project. He tells us where it's all going, where this is all leading. He says, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is the end of the road, my friends. This is where it's going. This is why God has arrived in the darkness. For peace. Now this Hebrew word, shalom, it, it, it doesn't just mean the ending of conflict, although it does mean that. It doesn't just mean the ceasing of hostility, although it does mean that. It also means wholeness and completeness. It has the idea of, of someone putting back together again what's been broken. It's the kind of wholeness that you and I have a really hard time imagining in a world that's so broken and so fragmented and so divided. And the kind of peace that God has in view here, it's almost like even God himself can't convey it without doing what in Hebrew is, is, is what makes something extremely emphatic. This would have sent shockwaves through the people that were reading it the first time. He, he says it twice. Shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. We're so accustomed to the disintegration that belongs to life on this side of heaven that it's just so hard to grasp with our minds or our hearts what a, what a fully integrated life would look like and feel like. An integrated life with God, with each other, with the world around us, and even with ourselves. Y'all, that's where the road's going. That's where the way is leading. That's the end of the road that God is preparing. And it will be worth what Paul says is light and momentary affliction along the way. It may not feel light, and it may not feel momentary. But when you get to the end of this road, this way that God is preparing, he says it will feel light and momentary.
And brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Advent, is that this way that God is preparing, the end of it, this kind of peace that he has in store for you at the end, the good news of the gospel is that the end of the way has actually come down the road to meet you along the way, to travel with you, to journey with you as you make your way home, so that what could have been entirely future is now something that is real and present to you right now. And we know that because peace itself has pierced into the darkness already. He did when a little cry from a dirty manger was heard outside of Bethlehem to a poor little peasant couple because peace itself had broken in in the Prince of Peace himself. And his own choir chose a song to sing on that night based on Isaiah 57 when they rang out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Peace to those with whom he is pleased. Peace to those who he is showing his grace to. Y'all, the good news of the gospel is that what's waiting for you at the end, what's been given to you by grace, meets you in the middle, on the way, by grace, to help you journey there. I think that this passage may have been in Jesus' mind that night before he was betrayed, when the disciples said, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus looked back at them in the eyes and he said, I am the way. I am the road that God has prepared to, to bring you home. And I've come to meet you on the road so that I can bring you all the way home. Y'all, Jesus is the way that God has prepared. He is the Prince of Peace himself that is taking you home to peace. May that thrill our hearts, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning, and put steel in our backbones to keep following him along this way that he's calling us on and that he's traveling with us on. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you, the Prince of Peace, the way to God, traveling on this way with us, wherever we are and whatever we are experiencing in this moment and in this season, however the hopelessness and the darkness might be creeping in. Lord, give us eyes to see that you have made the way forward by coming to find us. And you've come to find us in your Son, the Prince of Peace who has come once silently into the darkness but will not come again silently, but will come so that all the world might see and know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And until that day, travel with us, we pray, on this road, on this way, that you invite us on by your grace. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.